Hi, this is Dr. Nick Hoffman at the Marist School, and welcome to a new podcast I'm hosting along with my American Experiment colleague, Mike Burns. Now, the American Experiment class is a class in which we co-teach social studies and history and English and rhetoric all together in one double period class. It's honors levels and it's complicated, and as a result, I have been kind of imbuing myself with old literature and old... Well, and history, frankly, that I didn't know before. I know you'd think PhD history, he would have read it all, but you know, history's changing and there's sources I had to miss. Talking with Mike, we decided the best way to go about this is to, well, learn constantly. And along the way, the idea came up to put it down into a podcast. Required Reading is a show that has us look at the books that we currently assign, that we have assigned in the past, that we read on our own that we thought would be good, and books we read in high school and college ourselves, and see how they hold up, see if they would still be good to assign, and frankly, re-examine curriculum in a way that we think will be engaging. Uh, We will not be going chapter by chapter through the book, but we hope will be fun and entertaining and make you want to reread some classics. Now, we are starting with the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, which may be an unusual choice, perhaps, but I think it's a perfect example, because as you'll hear on the podcast, as someone who's taught APUS for on and off for years, it's something of a document that gets chopped up and used in DPQs and that I've read chunks of before, but it's been a long time since I sat down and read the whole thing. So enjoy our conversation. Will it always be nonfiction? Will it always be narratives? No. We have kind of popular fiction coming up, like The Hobbit. We have some new nonfiction, uh, like Just Mercy. We have some classic English department selections, like The Great Gatsby and The Scarlet Letter. I hope you enjoy the journey with us. And if you have any suggestions, please let us know. And thanks. Welcome to another episode of Required Reading. It took three takes. Wow. That was the best one. Okay. Required Reading. Ha! I am host, Dr. Nick Hoffman, and on panel with my buddy, Mike Burns. And we're here to bring up another book, whether or not you should read it, for, I guess, Required Reading. I don't know why that's so hard for me today, but it's, damn it, we're here. Um, all that alliteration. Yeah, that's right. So, with that in mind, we're doing today the... Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, and I've tried to get that right each time. I think I got it right that time. Nailed it. Uh, The idea of a narrative of a life is something that is kind of out of time. We would now say autobiography, but, you know, there you go. Mike, have you ever taught this before? Yeah, there's been times in American Lit where I've sort of used it um, as a slave narrative, tried to get a couple slave narrative excerpts in there, and then way back, like 10, 12 years ago, I'd did a course on slavery in America. It was, a, it was my first attempt to do a humanities course with a um, um, history teacher, Jason Froyo. Do you remember him at all? Was he around? Froyo. And he left to join the FBI or the Secret Service or that something like right. that. So so I had done all the prep and then he left and I just went it on my own. It was fun. It was a fascinating dive into all that stuff that I'd never known before, really. I mean, sort of vaguely knew of these stories, but I'm like, why didn't I read this in high school? And why why didn't I encounter this um, well, material? 
Yeah, tragically, this this kind of stuff when I interacted it even in school um, was cut up. You know, like you use this kind of thing as like a document for a DBQ. You know, a few hundred words here or there because right. I mean, maybe it's his skill, maybe it's his curse, but he's a very punchy writer. And you can pull out a chunk of this and break it down really well. So for, you know, you, the audience, I've been doing a book project in our class where I have scrambled together five kind of more historical works. And Mr. Burns here, Mike, has put together five, you know, fictional or narrative accounts and let the kids break it up. And this was one of the choices paired up with the Life of Sojourner Truth. We may do it at a later date yeah, as well. we should. It's good. And this is, well, I mean, I'll, I'll defer to you here. The idea of telling a narrative, the idea of telling a personal story is something we, we pointed out before. But this is the kind of thing you put your name to uh, in this time period. Whereas fiction, generally, you assign yourself a pseudonym. So how does a narrative work in this way? I don't know. I mean, I think partly Douglas's purpose is obviously a, a strong abolitionist streak here. He's writing this to the audience too particularly in the section we read. And I guess he did, I didn't know this before either until I, we read this for this um, talk, is that there's like three or four editions of his narrative over his life. And so the one we read focuses on the sort of, it's the first edition roughly, 1845, I think is when it came out. Right. Um, and so he's, he's very clearly showing the horrors of slavery and the injustice and inhumanity of it um, to that audience. Um to you know, advocate for abolition. Um, so I mean, I guess I don't know what is the purpose of a narrative that way. I mean, it's a very American genre, isn't it? I mean, as right. far as the way we teach it, it's like something well, so exceptional about my life or my views that everyone should share this and read this and learn from me. Kind of well, idea. Well, I mean, and again, we're living through an election right now. I don't know when this episode will come out, but at the moment, it's mid-October. And, you know, it's impossible to even run for president, even at, like, the most basic, like, I'm feeling things out level without having the political biography, which right. is a genre. Right. And, you know, yeah, as much as history, I think, now is trying to pull away from the great man narrative, like, you took this class 30 years ago, we'd be talking about the presidents in chronological order and the things around them. And other than, you know, the quick spattering, we don't do that anymore. We focus on political and cultural movements right. more. This is maybe that's why we don't teach this very often because this is focusing on one man's narrative but this is really punchy this is a political document in every sense of the word and it's fantastic yeah and, and i think he's also speaking for the many people that didn't have a voice or an outlet for this i mean he talks about how he learned to read and his first mistress um was kind to him and taught him to read and then quickly realized the problem with that and then uh, you know would punish him if she found him with a book and and so um, I think Douglas is a representative of, of many voices that we've never heard from and never will. And so I think it's powerful in that sense that it is a record of someone who, you know, got out of slavery and told his tale. Yeah, and I, I think we will get to this eventually, of course, whether we recommend it. That's kind of the way we end these things. Um, but I will make a plug here for an excellent book called The Radical and the Republican by James Oates. Um, and it talks about the development of Frederick Douglass pretty much picking up right around here, 1845. Um, and then comparing him to the rise of Lincoln and how the two of them batted heads and how Douglas at first didn't think he, that Lincoln was going far enough. Right. But then eventually Lincoln went much farther than Douglas ever thought was possible in his lifetime. Excellent political biography. Right. And we're jumping way ahead and jumping around. But didn't, isn't it true that Lincoln had Douglas to the White House at some point early and then got a lot of 
um, flack for that and sort of step back politically from yeah, and, hosting him on, on site. And it was kind of back and forth because what, what um, Douglas was pushing for was not only the Emancipation Proclamation, but then when it became law to do all the recruiting for what became like the Massachusetts 54th, um, which again, if you've seen uh, these movies, like we've talked about, but like Lincoln, he appears as a side character. He's a fairly significant figure in the movie Glory because that's what he was. Like we can get into Kendi because if that episode hasn't come out yet, we'll talk about Stamped and the idea of anti-racism. But what he's doing is advocating to say that African Americans, as free and enslaved people, not only have equal rights but want to prove themselves as Americans. Right? It's that thing we talk about a lot in class: is what does it mean to be American? And yeah, Lincoln gets some flack at first, but Lincoln eventually is very rarely in the White House, to be honest. Um, and so, yeah, he does interact with Douglas a lot. And read the Radical and the Republican, because like you said, we're not there. But right. he's an interesting political figure in that right. way. And as you're talking about sort of side characters, I know it just started. I haven't seen it yet, but I love the book Good Lord Bird, which is now a series. But in the book, Douglas himself is sort of an interesting side character. Um, so I'm curious how that plays out in the in the miniseries. Isn't he uh, David Diggs? Is he? Yeah, that makes... I think I've heard that, right? Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it. I've just read about it. Because I I was watching uh, whatever it is, Amazon Prime or whatever, and there was a trailer. I'm like, I think I know that man. (laughs) Everyone's favorite. uh, He plays Jefferson in uh, Hamilton. Um, So, you know, Good Lord Bird is not far. Love that book. I'll just put in a plug for Good Lord Bird. If you haven't read it, you should. It's kind of like a new Huck Finnish almost. Oh, good. I, a humorous take at a serious issue that makes you think in, in interesting ways as you're laughing. I'll do it. Yeah. I, that's one I haven't read yet. I, I, I have a, a never-ending reading Yes. That, that's being a teacher, isn't it? It is. Um, all right. Well, let's get into this. So okay. the book is divided up into, like, chunks. Um, the, the original version, like you mentioned, the one that we read, the 1845 version, has 11 chapters broken up into four parts. Um, the first part is kind of his young age. Uh, taking us from, like, saying, like, effectively, uh, he doesn't know when he was born. Right. Um, and kind of, he, he settles on February 4th, 1818, but we he doesn't know, we don't know, and that in and of itself is super significant, right? Like, the idea that he has no identity. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think that he hits this several times, but particularly near the end, when he's talking about when he gets to freedom, he settles on a new name. And to him, it's just, it's interesting, like, what matters to him, his first name more than his last name, and, like, all this stuff. Well, he doesn't even have a date of birth. Right. Um, yeah, and I, I try to teach that um, when, we, when we do these narratives with the, with the students, is that just the, the cumulative effect of all these little dehumanizing acts, like, not knowing, like, it sounds silly, but when I say, oh, happy birthday to you. In a way, that's saying, like, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're alive. And, you know, thanks for being you. And when you're deprived of that, don't even know. I mean, that clearly shows you have no value to to anyone. And so, um, yeah, the idea of naming someone or having a birthday or and, you know, it's heartbreaking. He talks about his mother, who he hardly knows at all. And, um, you know, soon after he, he was born, she gets moved to a different plantation and she would work on the field all day. She's a, clearly a field hand and then come back and see him at night and he'd fall asleep with her and then she'd be gone in the morning and, right. and he never, never knows when she dies. He just kind of hears about it after the fact and just, um, yeah, I can't imagine what that'd be like just to be completely alone as a, as an infant and right. just the effect on that over your whole life. 
And then the only person he gets close to is an auntie by the name of Hester. And uh, he calls her Aunt Hester. We just, like, we don't know if there's any real relation. Right. It's just the woman who takes care of the children on the plantation. And then at one point he sees her getting beaten. And that is, you know, kind of the, the crux of the fourth chapter. It's, you know, that fear that at any moment, even those people who are his adopted family can be taken away. Right. And, and just in terms of, again, how we, how we teach this, I mean, it's dripping with pathos. How can you not feel for this mother and child being, you know, torn apart or being deprived of each other, being deprived of those relationships um, that are so foundational to, you know, healthy development? Absolutely. And, you know, he, he doesn't even really know, I mean, of course, his father. He thinks it might be the master, but we yeah. don't know. And that's a powerful, like, image. And we, we, we kind of see it filtered through his retrospective eyes because remember like this is memory this isn't someone who's journaled his whole life this is someone who's illiterate for a lot of it and so this is him in 1845 sitting down and you know at the urging of william lloyd garrison to write your story down um and yeah you can feel this um it reminds me a lot of ways structurally of the autobiography of malcolm x where it seems like it's almost little vignettes that he's tied together right. with sometimes the loosest of strings, right? Because what he wants to do is hit hit the story part and then tie it to the next chapter. And often a chapter is just like, oh, this story's over. Let's move on. Yeah, that's a good point. It's very episodic in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and the point about his father being white is really interesting, too. And he says something towards the end of chapter, what chapter is this? Chapter one, I guess, um, where he's mentioning the, you know, the sort of, very specious argument of uh, the descendants of Ham being, you know, using the Bible to in- justify slavery. Um, and I'll just read this quote here. I'm prepared this time with a quote different from the, our Gatsby discussion. Um, he says, if the lineal descendants of Ham are alone to be scripturally enslaved, it is certain that slavery in the South must soon become unscriptural, for thousands are ushered into the world annually who, like myself, owe their existence to white fathers and those fathers most frequently their own masters. So this idea of intermingling, you can't justify race-based slavery anymore when, you know, you're half white. Right. And so it's an interesting argument for that, you know, again, very loose and poorly reasoned idea that the Bible justifies slavery in that way. Yeah, and and we have, uh, you know, and it's funny because um, we talk about this in such, like he, he alludes to, they're talking about these in religious terms, which are supposed to be so concrete, but ultimately things like miscegenation laws and racial purity laws that come out in the South are, you know, it feels very much like these are the s- systems that we are born into. You can't move up and down. Right. And, you know, if, if you are at the bottom of the caste system, you're just destined to stay there. Yeah. Um, and that's that's really what this feels like here. And that, I mean, that's crazy that, you know, it went on until the 60s and 70s here in America. I and mean, it's hard to believe that people are hanging on to that. Loving versus Virginia was like the 70s. Yeah. Like, you're like, you can't have these laws anymore. That's that's not that that's long nuts. ago. Yeah, I mean, I was alive during that. And how, how can that be? It seems so wrong. Yeah. It is so wrong. It is. The white rape of female slaves is generally ignored. Oh, uh, right. It's, it's the other way around. It's the fear of black men and white women. Right. Um, and, and the purity which is there, which, again, they get into in the later chapters. But, yeah, that goes to the other point that we don't hear those voices, right? Because nope. those people are deprived of education and deprived of writing. So, like a Sojourner Truth or a Harriet Jacobs, we get a little sense of that. 
um, and what makes those stories so powerful. That's right. And uh, I guess for you true crime nuts, it's the, the idea of the less dead. Like those are the people that don't even get to tell their stories. Right. So they, they, they're lost to us. Right. Um, but yeah, uh, I mean, what, what we establish in one through four and, you know, is that as a child, he has no identity. And so he's desperately looking for something that identifies him. And there's a turn when he moves to Baltimore. And we, I will mention this before we move to Baltimore here, because, you know, obviously we could talk about this all day. But he acknowledges at the beginning that he cannot even describe what it is to be sent down the river in Mississippi or, or in Georgia, where slavery he knows is worse. So he doesn't pretend to. Right. He tells only his narrative. And he says that time and time again, where he is at what will become a border state in Maryland and Baltimore, where slaves actually have significantly more agency than if we were talking about Arkansas or Louisiana at this time. Right. Um, which is, again, something that we don't think about. Slavery is not ubiquitous. Uh, we don't generally give it enough gray area. Um, and that's not to say any slavery is good. It's just that no two slaves were treated the same. Right. No no plantation worked in the same way. This brings in a lot of color to the story, which is excellent. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, too. Like, he, he talks about where he's, um, I guess he's in a, a harbor or something, and he's helping these Irish guys unload some stone. And um, he hears the word abolition, which he didn't know what it meant. And so, you know, he just hears this word buzzing around and he grabs a paper and sometimes makes the connection between abolition and, and getting rid of slavery. So it's just an interesting insight into, you know, it happens to us all where you hear a word and you don't know what it means. And then suddenly you start to hear that word over and over and over. Um, and in particular, I think it's a powerful way to him for him to tell that story of, you know, his discovering what abolition means. He sort of had felt it all along and then knows now what all these other people are talking about exactly and that's and that that that's what makes this narrative really sing it's it, it's his discovery too and we'll get there but like the scene where he first shows up in connecticut uh, uh yeah in, in new haven right is the thing that really shook me just because it's like oh it's all a lie uh which is great we'll get to it ready to move to baltimore sure yeah let's talk about baltimore um, so Baltimore is important because this is where he gets introduced to that mistress that you mentioned before who teaches him to read and write um, because she believes that having an educated slave servant type, because he's really here more of a servant in the home, like he's a house servant, uh, would make the day-to-day -day easier. You know, uh, if you can read and write, you can help me keep the books. You can get... And her husband is terrified by this idea. Right. right. Um yeah, and he says a couple times, and you hear this again in, in other narratives as well, that the idea of education and slavery are incompatible. that quote. As a historian, what, what do you think of this, this section or this part where he's on this plantation, and as a young boy, I think he's seven or so at this time period? So what stands out to you, Nick? I think we are done a disservice by talking only about things like Terra and Gone with the Wind, which... I think, rightly, history has judged it. I mean, I think it was on HBO Max a million months ago, and they, they gave that warning, like, this is a not fair representation of what slavery is. It's the lost cause warning, which is great, but that's not how all these plantations worked. When we get up to Maryland and their smaller tobacco plantations, this has a very interesting idea to it. Now, I will say, the idea of having, like, a recruited overseer the guy that's designed, I'm going to break your slaves, and they get like kind of farmed out to this guy. That's really a weird kind of unsettling idea, right? right. It it feels as though there's like an apprenticeship or or some something, 
And, you know, this is where we get Douglas hardening in a way. Like, not, not that he wasn't, you know, a slave before, but here he's starting to grasp it. And it's coming at the same time that he's coming of age, right? And again, this is where you can see that this, you can take out chunks and give a student two pages to get a narrative because he's very descriptive here and like how he lashes out and how he kind of comes around and, you know, Mr. Ald, uh, who is the, the slave master, uh, you know, disapproves of things. So he sends him away to br be broken right. like a horse or a gelding. Like that's a very visceral image. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, that's a great way of commodifying this human being, right? You're just a thing to be broken. You're a thing I'm going to trade or, or own and possess in so many ways. I found the quote. Um, and he's talking about his mistress when he first meets her and she treats him kindly and then sort of shifts on that. So she was an apt woman and a little experience soon demonstrated to her satisfaction that education and slavery, slavery were incompatible with each other. So that idea that once she realizes that he's learning... And as he learns more and more and he learns about the injustice of slavery, she's like, whoa, yeah. kind of pump the brakes on this. But it was too late because um, clearly he is intelligent and motivated and, and transcends all the um, difficulties he was under. That's right. That's um, right. And, you know, we and I hate to, to put this because I don't believe the idea of intelligence or IQ, but it's clear that he is brilliant from right. the beginning. Right. Like. You know, you, you could teach me math all day long and I would never grasp it. And there are those six-year-olds who probably could outdo me in calculus. Right. Like, and, and that's that's really funny because you never see that unfold in real time. And that's what we get here. Like the idea that you put a few words in front of him and then he – essentially he's tricking the neighborhood boys into right. teaching him extra words and letters, which is like – I bet you I can do a letter N. And he goes, oh, yeah? And he does the N. And he's like, well, I bet you you can't do a Q. And then he's just quickly scribbling down with this boy. It's, it's it, I mean, this section, that section specifically reads like a Tom Sawyer bit. Very much so, yeah. yeah. He's giving him little bits of bread that he, he, he pilfers from home. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting. And I wonder, I mean, and this is an American theme too, how much of this is accurate? I'm not taking away from Douglas at all. No doubt he's an exceptional person. Um, but how much of it is like personal myth making, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like George Washington and the cherry tree, all that's, I mean, obviously Washington didn't do that. And Douglas is writing about himself. Right. Um, well, and we, we can talk about the three appeals, you know, you have your ethos and your pathos and such. And I, it, what's interesting to me is he's like kind of in what could be, I mean, in Sojourner Truth is much more like, you know, a heart-rending, you know, emotional drama, he does throw in these little humorous bits as though right. he's like, this is getting dark, let me lighten this up a little bit, which makes it very compelling. It's much easier to read something like this, and like, because Brendan Murphy's across the hall from me, every now and again I get compelled to read something like Man's Search for Meaning, or there's there's no levity in Man's Search right. for Meaning. Right, and then when, when you say that, it makes me think when I was teaching that slavery narrative, I was just so depressed all yeah. the time, and it was so heavy to read these just heart-rending accounts, and just, it was tough to shake. Right. Um, and so you're right, yeah, he paces it enough that it, that story flows, he, he gets his punch points clearly, yeah. but it, it doesn't, like, overwhelm you. Well, and one day we will do Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer because, of course, we, we have to. Those are dying pieces of literature. Right. But I would, if you told me Mark Twain read this before he finished Huck Finn, I'd believe it. Because a lot of the same messages, you know, like, well, if it means I'm going to hell, then darn it, I'm going to right. hell. With When he's talking about Jim. And, right. You know, and it, the, the mix of levity and darkness and light and, like, the, the overwhelming power of slavery to an innocent, like, 
it feels very much like he did a version of this after he did Tom Sawyer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this isn't to say I would read this and think this is light reading by any means. No, absolutely not. But yeah, you're right. There's enough variation in the pacing that um, yeah, it doesn't feel as heavy as some other things, maybe. And this is the first draft of, of several, maybe the other versions of the narrative feel differently. But um, sure, sure. this reads very quickly and, and interestingly. And um, yeah, it definitely packs a punch and you can't help but think, man, how did this guy get through this? Yeah. It also makes it feel more, more human, right? Like those little moments where he's very puckish. I mean, like that that's how a boy of eight is. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, so uh, at like 10, I think his master dies, right? When he's 10 or 11, something like that. Yeah, he shifts plantations or gets shifted around a couple times, right? Yeah. Uh, the the property is divided between the, the master's son and daughter. And this is where he starts getting disgusted because he realizes that slaves are on the ledger opposite livestock, right? Like, and and then that's that for him is like, oh, we really don't matter to these people, right? Right. Um. Yeah. Um, of that section, I mean, obviously, we want to talk about his fight with Mister Covey. Um, the best. Um. Do we want to get to that or? Uh, I mean, talk about the idea of being very human and. And you always wonder at what point, like, how long can the enslaved keep up with this, right? It had to completely break their spirits all the time. And, and Douglas stands up for himself at the risk of his life, right? Yeah, I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? Well, so, yeah, l l let's get there. So he is going back and forth and back and forth. And you mentioned that, you know, he as he moves around, there's tension there. He prefers to be with Master Hugh because... You know, Master Hugh seems to give him some leeway. And in fact, he essentially lets um, Douglas, who at this point has some skill as, you know, like a carpenter engineer type, to raise money as long as he gets paid a certain amount. Right. Um, and then they come into kind of uh, an intellectual argument as to what that freedom means. And he gets sent away somewhere else. Um, he is set with Master Thomas. And Thomas is much crueler, much more indifferent, and it's seen as a slave punishment, right? And this is where we get Douglas kind of describing his life uh, in comparison to livestock, or I guess now we'd say like, you know how some people take care of their car? Well, some people don't, right? Right? Like, and and he's very blunt about how there, like, with Master Hugh, there was this kind of intellectual back and forth, like you have overstepped your bounds, and he's being disciplined. I mean, still like a dog or something. To Master Thomas, he's really just literally labor. Yeah, I mean, he, he writes, I uh, highlighted at some point, about the beast-like stupor that he feels in. I mean, he feels like an animal because he's treated that way. Yeah, and isn't there a part, and I'm maybe misremembering, that he thought he was going to get traded down the river, literally, and like he knows that's bad and he knows he'll never come back. And so, yeah, it's just sort of, it's interesting to conceive of what they the slave knew about what's going on on their plantation versus getting traded elsewhere, what happens to people when they get go away and are never heard from again, and, and all those stories, just how information traveled in the slave community. Well, I mean, and two, it seems very interesting and very unique to his story that he is in Maryland, right? He is so close to the breadth of right. you know the free states like Pennsylvania where slavery is literally illegal. Um, and, you know, he interacts with Friedman now and again. And, like, 
He, you know, whenever we see images of him, he's wearing that tie and he has his hair well groomed and he, he looks like one of the freedmen that we always hear. You know, Frederick Douglass, the guy who's advocating for the Massachusetts 54th. That must have infuriated him too because he describes the clothes he's given and then how he can dress up when he's working in town and then how that's taken away from him. You know, again, it's that humanity of, you know, please don't make me wear a tie all the time. Right. But, you know, but it's, it's, it's that idea. It's the clothes can make the man in this case. And therefore, you know, we, I mentioned this in class, it's the performativity. He wants to look like, and he gets into this, the being colored versus being a Negro. A colored person is someone who is middle class. He's educated. He could be that person. But they keep pulling him back away from it, most, most notably when he's being dealt with by Mr. Covey. Right. Um, and that's why I think Baltimore, to him, represents this magical place. You know, it's the metropole. It's where all these people can go. You can start fresh. You know, it's that, that urban dream of everyone who, you know, from the rural kid who wants to make it big, from the LGBT community who finds community for the first time, the immigrants who make up the little Italy's or whatever. It's the American dream, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. And it's so funny to see him grasping for it and it being pulled away from him every single time. Right. Right. And you mentioned clothes and I, I, didn't, I didn't highlight this, but I remember there's a part where he's talking about his, his feet and his shoes and like his feet are so raw because he never had shoes that he has to like wait a week before he can put shoes on. Am I remembering that? Yeah, right? and yeah. it's like feet are swelling. And right. Yeah, and just we don't think about just the physical depravity that these people lived under. Yeah. Um, not having shoes, not having clothes that you know fit you, or you don't have to wear for six months at a time or something. That's right. And again, like that line he has to draw about when he's out of slavery and advocating against slavery, what he looks like. Right. Because we, we will talk about this again when we get to Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King and that middle class versus, you know, black power look. But for him, that advocacy of I am just another middle class person that needs respect. Well, eventually it's like, well, were you ever a slave? Like Sojourner Truth never puts that rifle down. Mm -hmm. She is always the Underground Railroad. She is always Moses. All right. Right. He rises to the ranks of intellectualism, which is interesting. But then, I mean. In a speech he gives later on, um, uh, what the 4th of July needs to a Negro, he's like, my hands might no longer be rough, but I still carry the scars. Right. Right? Like, And, and that's what that labor means to him, which is fascinating. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. And that idea of being performative, and I think you and I have talked about this before, that he was the most photographed man in America in the 19th century, right? That, that, yeah, that, that's the story, yeah. So. As a conscious effort, like, this is my image, and he's putting that out there in, in so many different ways. And photography was a new medium at the time, but, you know, he's very conscious about his image and, you know, literally his image being published that way and shared that way. And it's, it's for him, also a form of safety. Like, you know, I'm the most known man in America. You can't touch me, right? And that that's... Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, Mr. Covey? Yeah, let's talk about this dude. He's a slave breaker. Right. Yeah. And he's brought in... I mean, he's, he's abusive, and he whips him, and, you know, there's incredibly vivid accounts of Frederick getting tortured, essentially, right? Yeah. You know what you call it? And then there's finally a point where um, he stands up to him, Um you want to frame the context more than that? I have some quotes sort of talking about what happens afterwards, but... Well, I mean, the, the first thing I will say is um, the, we, we talked a little bit about uh, in this school that Stamped would cause controversy because they talk about an analysis of Uncle Tom's Cabin about good Christians versus bad Christians. 
That comes up here where Mr. Ald has, uh, he, he's like, I was surprised at his cruelty, even though he had just attended a Methodist camp. <laughs> right. <laughs> just like, oh, so, because he, he's like, he's making that joke, like, oh yeah, good Christians. I right. get it. I, I get good Christians. All right. I, I see you. I see, I see you. you. Are, yeah. That's exactly right. And then it kind of flips around. It cuts to, like, Mr. Covey, like, is is giving him lashes, like, time and time again. And essentially, Douglas knows that he's going to get whipped. And he stands up for himself. And, I mean, we get the most cathartic scene. I believe it's at the end of Chapter 9. Is that where you are? Uh, 9 or 10, yeah, right. Let me flip the page here. But, like, we are... 10. Yeah, that's okay, right. Yeah, yeah, we're in Chapter 10. And, like, this is where Douglas really lashes out, really goes at him. Give me our quotes. Give me your quotes. So he sort of, there's this always, there's this loose tension. They're sort of eyeing each other all the time because he knows Kobe uses the whip to keep Douglas in submission. And Douglas has been fighting back a little bit. And so there's this scene where um, he's sort of working on something. And then, um, let's see. I was engaged, do, 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 do. and then he says, out of nowhere, I don't know whence came the spirit, but I was resolved to fight, and I seized Mr. Covey hard by the throat, and as I did so, I rose, and he held on to me and I to him. So finally, he just stands up and grabs him by the throat, and they roll around, and they fight, and they kick, um, and then essentially, um, they sort of come to a draw, and um, he says, do, 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 um, uh, the truth was that he had not whipped me at all. I considered him as entirely getting the worst end of the bargain. So this is Douglas reflecting on the end of the fight. Uh, for he had drawn no blood from me, but I had from him. The whole six months afterwards that I spent with Mr. Covey, he never laid the weight of his finger upon me in anger. He would occasionally say he didn't want to get a hold of me again. No, thought I, you need not, for you will come off worse than you did before. So there's a physical, like... He whipped his ass, essentially, yeah. right? Um, or at least that's Douglas's account of it. And then he wonders why Kobe didn't trade him off or sell him off or anywhere. And he has this fascinating, fascinating part here where he says, do, 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 do. Long crushed spirit rose, cowardice departed, bold defiance took its place. And I now resolved that however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. I did not hesitate to let it be known of me that the white man who expected to succeed in whipping must also succeed in killing me. So he, that's like his turning point. I'm never going back. If you dare whip me again, you're going to have to kill me. Right. And then at the end, he says, he always wonders why Mr. Covey um, um, didn't trade him off. And it says, I'll, I'll read the last paragraph of chapter 10. It was a long time, a matter of surprise to me why Mr. Covey did not immediately have me taken by the constable to the whipping post and there regularly whipped for the crime of raising my hand against a white man in defense of myself. And the only explanation I can think of does not entirely satisfy me, but it is such as I will give it. Mr. Covey enjoyed the most unbounded reputation for being a first-rate overseer and negro breaker. It was of considerable importance to him. That reputation was at stake, and he had sent me, a boy about 16 years old, to the public whipping post. His reputation would have been lost. So to save his reputation, he suffered me to go unpunished. So the idea, like, he couldn't bear losing to the 16-year-old slave. And so he pretends it doesn't happen, just that, that covering up. He's too pride, um, pride-bound to admit that. Yeah. So it's interesting. I don't know. Um, but, it, yeah, it shows that really strange dynamic between the two. Um, 
in the great American story, right? He's rising up. He's taking power for himself. He's not going to put it up with any more. And here's this new beginning. Oh, this is a real shift for him. That's right. Okay. So I, I found that really fascinating because you don't hear many accounts because normally what would happen if a slave fought up, they get traded off or hanged or beaten or killed or... or and maybe that's doesn't the, end well. Maybe that's the caveat of Maryland. Like, if this had happened in Georgia, they just never would have heard of him again. Right. You know, yeah, or South maybe. Carolina or whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure that happened many, many times. Yeah. We never hear those stories. You know, and we'll, we'll get to it in notes this week or next week, but like Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner's Rebellion, like, these things are brutally crushed because they don't want another Haiti on their hands. Right. Yeah. Um, chapter 11 is, and I, I believe I read the second edition. Okay. Um, is a little bit longer than your 11th chapter because we get a little bit further into his escape. Um, but, you know, previously, like when he was like 12, he feels like he had a chance to escape and doesn't take it. And then this is when he makes his break for it. Um, in Maryland, uh, he makes connections with abolitionists who essentially say like, look, we can get you this far, this far, this far. And it's going from town to town to town escaping. Um, this is the part where he becomes action hero, Douglas, uh, sneaking out. Um, adopting different names, and then when the heat comes on him, he goes again, ultimately ending in New Bedford, I believe, mm-hmm. where he meets back up with his fiance, right? And they have their happy ending. Right. He And he very kind of triumphantly at the end says he becomes his own master, which is, you know, and all the weight that that entails. It's, right. Th- th- I think this is him with his final flourish, his very almost Ben Franklin-esque, like, and then I found in America, right? It's it's so blunt at the end there that you're like, oh, yeah, of right. course, this is his victory lap, and he deserves it. But it's that's the Hollywood what ending. It's the Hollywood ending that we all love, right? And, and I made my money, and I started entering the lecture tour, like right. all celebrities want to do. <laughs> Happily ever after, right? Um, but I will bring up the one thing that I really remember about this chapter, really taking my breath away, is when he gets there, he, he, he goes, when I loved, lived among the poor whites... I realized that, oh, only slavery can bring great wealth, right? Like, because what the, the, you know, the poor whites are poor because they have no slaves, of course, and they have small farms. But when he gets to Connecticut and to New England, people are wealthy without slaves, right? And, you know, he goes to the docks and every man is worth his own weight and they get right. paid the same. And he goes, oh, all slavery was was a lie, right? Like, it's, you know, this is like, you can almost hold up a flag and say capitalism, right? Um, or... This is why Marx was in favor of our civil war, because it would free the slave and bring around the middle class. Right. But just for that moment where he realizes that everything that he has been told his whole life is a lie, and not, not just about abolition and learning that, but the whole system is flawed. Right. It's so fascinating to see him unpack that in an instant. Like, that the, you can be wealthy without slavery means that those people truly are wrong. Right. Fantastic. Yeah, and, and and as you're saying, that makes me think is what's fascinating about this whole narrative is it's all about self-discovery, right? Yeah. He's discovering about himself and the world and how that works, and he carries you along with that. And it just is really, a, it's a powerful story, and you can't help but be moved by these revelations that he has over and over and over and over, and he tells it so well. He does. Um, yeah, it's, it's. I would definitely recommend this as required reading. Yeah, so give me your final thoughts. Well, that's a good segue, as any. The bell's yeah. about to ring, man. Okay, all right. The bell is always about to ring. Um, yeah, a powerful account. Um, I've read it before, and then most recently I listened to it on audio, which was great. Um, we didn't really talk about his skill as an orator, and like I thought, I thought it was interesting that one of the first books he gets is the Colombian Orator. Right. And he talks about these these great speeches uh, that he must have internalized and. Um, you know, because he becomes America's greatest order. And so, yeah. 
yeah, it's a good story, well told. What else can I say? Yeah. Yeah, I will say the, an important story too. Absolutely. Um, the only problem, I, I mean, I have no problem with it. Yes, one hundred percent signed it. It's a hard length because it's like a, like a novel, like a novelique. Like it's not long enough to be a full book. It's not short enough to be a short story. It's like right. 75, 80 pages. Right. But that means anyone should be able to hack it out in a couple days. Yeah. You know, it's 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 so good, and it's different than anything you expect. Um, I like this, you know, I, I'm a fan of like slave movies or whatever, like uh, Amistad, but Amistad is just so bleak. This, this does not feel as bleak. It feels much more human. It's a much more complete story. Like you said, it's got a happy ending too, the way he tells it. Right. Well, and, and for him, it clearly was, um, I, 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 I adore this book. I, I love him as a person, as a character, um, in his own story. Uh, cause he, he makes himself very compelling, which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, what are you reading, Mike? Uh, as I told you before, I'm listening to another audiobook. Um, it's called The Environmental History of the Civil War. Yeah. And it's really fascinating. He's talking about how weather and disease and just the logistics of animals um, really affected how the Civil War was fought uh, and food and starvation. And um, it's fascinating. So it's, again, just another sort of untold story that is, or it's new to me. And so it's, it's interesting. So I know you know more about the medicine um, which I learned from teaching with you last year, but sure. um, there's still so much to learn there. I appreciate you giving me credit for anything. <laughs> and, then, and I finished Action yeah. Philosophers. I meant to bring that back to you. So oh, great. It's brilliant. Yeah. Action Philosophers is a lot of fun. It's a comic book. Um, yeah. Well, I guess like you, um, I do have some beach reading I've been doing. I've been reading uh, The Firm, you know, the classic oh, nice. Christian. Right. I'd, I'd never read it before. Right. I mean, it's Conspiracy in the Mob. What do you want? Like, it's great. It's great. It's great. Um, I will pitch something a little bit more high-minded. I just finished a book by John Meacham uh, called oh, yeah. The Spirit of America. It's excellent because it sets up a problem, uh, fear of communism, racism, whatever, and it shows that America so often finds a solution. The progressives, you know, um, the fall of McCarthy and the rise of kind of optimism in the 60s and the New Deal. Like, it, it's, it's really interesting because we're in an, um, at our school, we're doing kind of a focus on ant being anti-racist and, you know, racial narratives. This book kind of pairs that with American optimism and hope that, yes, we have these issues and, yes, we constantly also have people fighting them, which is really nice. It's nice to have an optimistic tone. Right. We need some hope. And, and John Meacham is great. Um, I've read uh, Franklin and Winston before, which is about Franklin Roosevelt's relationship with Winston Churchill. But this is new to me and I loved it. So I'll recommend that. And I guess The Firm, if someone hasn't seen the Tom Cruise movie or heard of John Grisham, I mean, he's a real up and comer from, you know, 30 years ago. Or 40 I, hear, years I, hear, ago. I hear he's got some good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. And uh, the bell's going to ring. So, Mike. Right. Thanks. Yeah. We'll see you later with the next book. Bye, guys. Required Reading is a product of Marist Podcasting Club and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is produced by Nick Hoffman and hosted by Mike Burns and Nick Hoffman. The theme song is Feeling Good by Kevin McLeod, used under the Creative Commons 4 license. Find it at Incomtech. Dot com or linked on our website. The views expressed here are the views of the hosts and the panelists and do not reflect the views of the Marist School or the Society of Marist.